So we're in this series at the moment where um, we're looking at, at some of the basics of Christian life and Christian truths. And it, it's my enormous privilege this morning to be able to talk about forgiveness. And I have to say, I, I do this with some trepidation, um, partly because it is such a big subject. And I can't do it justice. I really cannot do it justice. Um, and partly because it's impossible to fit it all into one talk on a Sunday morning. But we're going to have a look, at least, at some aspects of forgiveness. And just to, to begin with, uh, back in 1997, which seems like a long time ago now, but um, a Labour government was elected in the UK. Tony Blair led a, a new Labour government in the UK. Does anybody remember what his three priorities for government were? Thought, thought you would. Education, education, education. Those were Tony Blair's three priorities for government when he was elected in 1997. Well, I, I guess history will judge how well he did with that. But what I'd like to suggest is that throughout history, God has had three priorities for us. And if you read the Bible, it is evident from the first page to the last page, God has three priorities for us, and those three priorities are forgiveness, forgiveness, and forgiveness. It's written right the way through the history of God's dealing with us. It is all about his love for us, and because of his love for us, his forgiveness. I think there, there are two big aspects about forgiveness. One is us receiving God's forgiveness, and the second is us passing on that forgiveness to others. I haven't got time to talk about all of that this morning. So the small group questions, which are already up on the website, so you can go to the website, go to resources, small groups, and the questions are there for the small groups this week. The questions for small groups this, week's are gonna, this week are going to focus on how we outwork the forgiveness we've been given by God into forgiving other people. And that is such an important part of it. God calls us to forgive because we have been forgiven. But I'm, I'm not going to focus on that this morning. What I want to focus on this morning is God's redemption of us, God's forgiveness for us. The world has a view on forgiveness. There is a lot that has been written about forgiveness. Uh, there is all sorts of self-help articles, life coaches that will talk to you about forgiveness. You can go online and you can look at TED Talks about forgiveness. The world has a view on forgiveness. And the, these are just some of the quotes. I forgive myself for having believed for so long that I was never good enough to have, never good enough to have, get and be what I wanted. Today I decided to forgive you, not because you apologized or because you acknowledged the pain that you caused me, but because my soul deserves peace. Forgive others, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because you deserve peace. 
in all honesty, this is a, a warped view of forgiveness. I, I think the world recognizes, recognizes that forgiveness is something incredibly important, incredibly special. But if you look at this from a worldly perspective, it's all centered around us. It's all centered around me, my peace. My soul deserves it. I deserve it. That is such, such a pale imitation of what true forgiveness is all about. Because true forgiveness starts and ends with God. True forgiveness starts, has to start, with the recognition of sin. That we are going our own way. That we have been separated from God. It comes from a recognition that we need a restored relationship. That we desperately, desperately need to have that relationship restored. And it recognizes that there is nothing you and I can do about that. Because it's totally dependent on God. That God reaches out of eternity, reaches into our lives and forgives us. And that is the starting point of forgiveness. By ourselves, there is nothing we can achieve. I think it's sometimes difficult to get our heads around the concept of sin and the importance of sin. Sin is pretty simple in concept, I guess, really. You know, it's, it's about us choosing to do things our way and ignoring God. That's the simple basis of sin that we've decided we can do things better than God. It's about selfishness, it's about pride, it's about ignoring what God wants for us, putting ourselves above God. But the thing is, we live our lives mostly trying to weigh up good and bad. The whole of our lives are governed by it, if you think about it. You know, when, when you're a child and you're looking forward to Christmas, it's, you know, have you been good enough to get that present? Yeah, just weigh, weigh it up, the bad things you've done and the good things you've done, and, you know, have you managed to get there? Have you managed to be good enough to get those presents? Have you managed to be good enough at school to pass the exams, to get the qualifications you need? Did he manage to do that at university, get those qualifications, pass those exams? Did, it, did, did you do enough to pass? Did you do enough to get that job that you wanted? Did you not do enough to go on that trip that you wanted to go on? And so in so many aspects of life, even when it comes to things like sports, you know, it, it, it's weighing up good and bad. You know, did you score enough goals? Did you let in too many goals? All of our lives, we're weighing up good and bad. And, and what's the balance? What's the balance? Good against evil. But we need a reality check when it comes to God and when it comes to sin, doing things our way. We need to understand that God is holy, that God is perfect, that God is pure, 
And he can't tolerate sin. He simply can't tolerate sin. He can't tolerate the fact that we have chosen to put ourselves above him, that we have chosen to be selfish, to be full of pride, to do things our way, to live our lives at least partially ignoring what he wants. And there are consequences that go with that. It's not a case of balance. You know, have we done enough good to balance out ignoring God? There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do that would ever balance that equation. We, it's, it's just impossible. We've chosen to do things our way. That's a choice. Nothing we can do is going to make up for that. And there is a consequence. Choosing to do things our way has a consequence. It results in death. It results in spiritual death. Quite literally, separation from God. That's the consequence of sin. And we can't get away from that. Hell is simply that. Eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from the one who created us. The one who loves us. But God wants that relationship with us. Despite our sin, despite doing things our way, God wants that relationship. And to do that, there has to be some price to pay. What we call atonement. That God reaches down out of eternity to pay the price to restore the relationship, to bring us back into complete relationship with him. And that's what forgiveness is all about. That's what we refer to with atonement, paying the price to restore that relationship, to bring us back into full relationship with God. And we get some idea about this if we look at the Old Testament. Look at the Old Testament and the, the Old Covenant and the relationship God had with Israel, his chosen nation. And if we look at that relationship, at face value, it can seem pretty odd to us with our kind of modern day eyes, if you like. Because there's an awful lot of talk about sacrifice in the Old Testament. And it does seem like an alien practice to us. But we need to understand perhaps a little bit about what all of those sacrifices were trying to achieve and the symbolism associated with it. We need to understand that the Israelites were God's chosen nation at the time, living amongst nations of, of pagan people who were worshipping foreign gods. And sacrifice was commonplace. Sacrifice to try and appease the gods, to try and appease the anger of the gods, to feed the gods so that they wouldn't be too angry with the people. That has really nothing to do with the system of sacrifices that Israel practiced with God. So you need to understand that at that time, the Israelites were essentially uh, a nation of villagers. They were living in villages. 
And they were a relatively poor nation, certainly compared to modern day, a relatively poor nation. They were living hand to mouth most of the time. For the Israelites at that time, their most valuable possession, possession would have been their animals. They would have been their most valuable possession. They would very rarely kill an animal to eat it. The only time they would do that would be for a really special occasion. You know, something like a marriage maybe, a, a, a feast. They might kill one of their animals and, and have a, a real celebration. And so the idea of, of sacrifice and sacrificing an animal to God was really an act of enormous worship to say that, God, you are so special. You are the creator God because you are so special. As an act of worship, we're going to offer you something that is of such value to us. So at least in part, there was this aspect of it being just simply an act of, of worship, offering something that is most valuable to God who was the most important person. An unblemished, pure animal. And we know that time and time again, when you read the Old Testament, it's not about the act of sacrifice. It's not about what they did, the animal that they killed. It was about their heart. And that was what was important to God. What was in their heart. So this was symbolic of worship to God. Symbolic also of the shedding of blood. Because God told them that the life of the creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So the shedding of blood of, of a perfect animal was representative of the forgiveness of God, the necessity of shedding blood to redeem them, to put them into right relationship with God. There was one day a year that was special for the Israelites, the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month. This was the day in which the high priest would make a sacrifice for the whole nation to cover the sins of the whole nation. So they had the tabernacle, which later became the temple where the priests would serve. And there was a, a small room, if you like, within the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be. The Ark of the Covenant was where the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, they were in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was covered in gold, had two seraphims, two angels sitting on top, what was known as the mercy seat. Nobody could go into the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a curtain. Nobody could go in. One day a year, the high priest only could go into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice on behalf of the whole of the people. One day a year. Even then, he had to go in with incense burning, creating a cloud because the glory of God resided in the Holy of Holies. That's where God met with the high priest. Huge symbolism. And the high priest would sprinkle blood 
over the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, representing blood over those tablets of stone, over the law. Because the Israelites had broken the law, because there was sin, they were covering over the sin. This was symbolism, but such important symbolism to represent forgiveness for the nation, for the broken law during the past year. It's a really interesting quote. Keep in mind that when sin is viewed superficially, it is dealt with superficially. We have to understand how important sin is to a holy God, to a pure God, to a God that's desperate for relationship with us, that's desperate for us to walk in his way, for us to have turned our back on God, to have ignored him. We need to understand the consequences of that and the importance of that. We need to understand the importance of forgiveness. That right from the start, God was saying, I want to forgive you. I want relationship with you. It's interesting also that if you look at the, the Hebrew, the word for atonement, this restoration of relationship with God, it actually refers to covering over sin. Just to cover it. Not to get rid of it, but to cover it. And effectively, that was what was happening under the Old Covenant. It was, it was foreshadowing what was going to happen in the future. But it allowed a covering over of the sin. So it's important that we understand the consequences of sin. Our selfishness, our pride... Our choice to live in a way that's contrary to God's perfect plan for us. But God's holiness and God's purity is matched by his unrelenting love for us. And his desire to restore relationship through forgiveness. And God's dealing with us is, is like a stick of rock with forgiveness just written right the way through the middle of it. And that forgiveness was ultimately fulfilled with Jesus, with the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus, God's own son, God's perfect son. And I just want to read a few verses from Matthew's gospel about the crucifixion of Christ. So Matthew chapter 27 Words that will be really familiar to you, but, but just listen to them afresh, perhaps. They stripped him, Jesus, and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! They said. They spat on him 
They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Did that to people that were being crucified to help numb the pain, numb the experience. (coughs) But after tasting it, Jesus refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Now if he wants. And let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, they must have which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There are huge mysteries in the crucifixion. Why did Jesus have to suffer so much? Wasn't it enough that he died? Wasn't it enough that he shed his blood for us? And why why did he have to suffer one of the cruelest forms of execution that has ever been devised. And we're told by Isaiah, by his stripes, 
we are healed. We do know uh, his suffering was just enormous. And at least because of that, we can have no doubt, no doubt ever, that God understands our suffering. There's nothing that we can go through and we can turn to God and say, you don't understand, God. Because God says, yeah, I do. He chose the nails. He chose to have the splinters piercing his shoulders. He chose to be crucified alongside common criminals out of passionate love for you and for me. about that crown of thorns that was put together for him by the soldiers in the Bible thorns are are so often used to describe the fruit of sin verse from Proverbs up on the screen there thorns are used to describe the result of sin Jesus wore a crown of thorns, pierced and cut his head. Symbolic of the fruit of our sins that were piercing and cutting his heart. He could have had them stop. At any moment, he could have had them stop. But he didn't. He chose the cross for you and for me. And those soldiers, they had one job to do. Their job was to take Jesus to be crucified. They had other ideas, though. Strong, elite soldiers gathering around this weak, exhausted carpenter from Nazareth. Already almost dead. And what did they do? They mocked him and they spat on him. Spitting doesn't cause any physical pain. There was plenty of that. They've been hitting him over the head. But spitting doesn't cause physical pain. Spat on him to degrade him. To belittle him. Elevating themselves at the expense of Jesus. Making themselves feel big at the expense of the Son of God. But the thing is, see, when have I done that? When have I made somebody else feel small? Less significant than they are. 
And Jesus says, what we do to others, we do to him. And he bears our sin. And those last words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the most powerful words in the whole of history. The whole of history. Those are the most powerful words. Even scholars that are completely skeptical about who Jesus was acknowledge that these words must be true. Because they say that nobody would have made them up. Nobody would have created a story where the central character was going to be the focus for that religion would be so weak and so broken. Nobody would make it up. The word that's translated as Jesus cried out can equally be translated as Jesus screamed or screeched. It was a desperate cry. Matthew tells us that there was darkness over the land. For three hours there was darkness over the land. That darkness over the land symbolized God's judgment. Not God's judgment on the land, but God's judgment on Jesus. At that moment, God turns his back on Jesus. Jesus feels the full force of God's judgment on himself. And he is just utterly despondent. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting a psalm of David. He is quoting Psalm 22. And it's a really unusual psalm because many of the psalms are written by David. Most of those psalms are written by David out of some personal experience. I mean, they're brilliant psalms to read because you can identify with David and all the emotions of what he goes through. But this is... This is such an unusual psalm because when you read the psalm, the psalm is actually about an execution. I'll just read you some bits from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. 
roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, my my mouth is dried up, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Just almost an exact representation of what Jesus went through at the time of his death. Jesus, who is one with the Father. Jesus the Son, who had been united spirit and soul with the Father throughout the whole of eternity, at this point in time, found himself wrenched apart, torn away from the Father, forsaken, the Father turning his back on him, Jesus receiving the punishment, the separation from God that we deserve. All of us know the pain of losing someone we love. All of us know that. The loss of somebody we love, the loss of somebody that loves us, can be pretty unbearable, right? But when you think about that pain... That, that is like a dewdrop in the Atlantic Ocean compared with the pain that Jesus had to suffer. Just a pinprick compared with that pain. To suffer God the Father turning his back on him abandoning him on the cross, receiving the punishment we deserved. The depths of hell poured out on Jesus at that moment, and all he could say was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To cry it out, to scream it out, my God. And at that moment, the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies was torn apart from top to bottom. The moment Jesus died, that curtain was torn open. That curtain was probably 30 or 40 feet high. It was a massive curtain. It was probably between one and four inches thick. It was a huge curtain. It was there 
to divide the Holy of Holies, that place that only the high priest could enter once every year to offer forgiveness for sins. Torn open from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, the moment Jesus died. Until that time, if anybody had entered the Holy of Holies, they would have died. People couldn't be in the presence of the glory of God. From the moment Jesus died, no one can live without entering that place. Jesus opened up grace and mercy and love for every one of us. For every one of us. Opened up the floodgates that we can all be forgiven. Because it used to be that we couldn't look on God. You can't see my face for no man can see me and live. And as Job cried out, if only there was a mediator, if only there was somebody that could mediate between us and God. And as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus. He achieved that, that we can all stand in the presence of God. But there are two substitutions that took place at the cross. Two substitutions. One is that Jesus took on all of our sin, all of our guilt on his shoulders, bore all of that for us. But the other substitution, just as incredible, is that God says, I'm going to take the righteousness of Jesus and give it to you. You are not only forgiven, not only is your guilt washed away, but I'm going to make you my sons and my daughters. When I look at you, I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to see the holiness and purity and righteousness of Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the incredible love that God has for us. Unreasonable, inexplicable love. The aggressive forgiveness and grace that he pours out on us. God was prepared to turn his back on his own son to redeem me, to redeem you. So that atonement, that restoration that Jesus brings is the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the practices of sacrifice under the old covenant 
And sin isn't just covered now. It's not that sin is covered. It is completely removed. What does God say about our sin? He says, I'm going to make you whiter than snow. I'm going to remove your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so I'm going to remove your sin. I'm going to remember your sin no more. It's not covered over. It's completely, completely forgotten. And that's a challenge for us, I think. A real challenge for us. Because we might know in our minds that this is what Christ achieved at the cross. We might be prepared sometimes perhaps to believe that he did that for others. But do we know deep in our hearts, deep in our hearts, do we know that my sins, my sins have been forgotten? I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. And of course, none of us, none of us deserve that. But God loves us all the same. Sent Jesus to die for every single one of us. The world says that we need to learn to forgive ourselves because in forgiving ourselves, there's peace. And God says that's such a tragic mockery. We can't forgive ourselves. There is nothing we can do to forgive ourselves. God says you need to accept my forgiveness. You need to accept that I sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. By his stripes you are healed. I've laid your guilt on his shoulders and I have buried it so far I can't even see it anymore. I look at you and I see Jesus. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I want you to be free to live in the power of my spirit. Because this is what I've done for you. This is forgiveness. I want to close just by reading a couple of verses from Colossians. And we're going to finish by having a, another song, which I think will really help to focus as, as we come to the end here but a couple of verses from Colossians Paul's letter to Colossians which just sum this up so beautifully Paul says yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body as a result he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless 
as you stand before him without a single fault. I'll read that again. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. And we need to stand in that waterfall of God's forgiveness. We need to understand the, the depth of God's love for us. What he has achieved for us. Not only to know it in our mind, but to let that fill our heart. To know that God's love has no end. That he sent Jesus to die for you and for me. And... As a result, he places Jesus' righteousness on us. Our sins are forgotten. Our guilt is gone. That waterfall of forgiveness. And he wants that to flow out of us into others. If you've never known God's forgiveness, then please don't leave here this morning without experiencing it. I'd love to pray with you. Any of the others, other leaders would happily pray with you. Just let us know uh, and would happily do that. If, if you need prayer for anything else, then um, you know, gra grab me afterwards. Pray with somebody that, that you came with. But don't leave here today without knowing that forgiveness from Jesus. Let me just pray for us briefly and then we can maybe close by singing the song. Father, just to, to stand in your presence and to be able to call you Father. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But your love has reached out through eternity to find us, to chase us down, to redeem us, to bring us back to you. Father, we just want to pour out our lives. We want to offer up our lives to you in worship to you because you gave everything for us. Father, we want to know your love filling our lives, transforming us. We want to know that forgiveness that wipes away every sin, all of our guilt, because Jesus has took it all on the cross.
Father, I want to thank you for that. Words that are so inadequate. But thank you, Father, that you've done that for us. You've done that for each and every one of us. And Father, let us be transformed by that love, by that mercy, by that grace, by that aggressive forgiveness. Let us be transformed as we offer our lives to you. Amen.